All right, welcome back to another episode of the Men Mentor Podcast, where we highlight the examples of astounding physicians of color with the hope of inspiring you all the listeners to pursue careers in medicine. My name is Justin Oliveira. I'm your host, I'm a first year medical student, and I'm joined with me today by Dr. Dominique Aimé Jean. Dr. Jean, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's an incredible feat for a first year medical student, I must say. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I will say, um, it was a little ambitious, you know, <laughs> when I started this. That's, when I, when you I started have to be ambitious. Idea, I started the idea and I thought I would have way more time. And then I got up to it and I was like, oh, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> but it's going well. It's going well. Thank you for doing this. I know we were going back and forth for the last few months about scheduling. So I appreciate no you. No problem. I, I remember first year well. So. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. All right. So we're going to start with the introduction. So. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dominique Aimé-Jean is a double board certified pediatric anesthesiologist currently based in New York. After graduating from Penn State with a bachelor's of science in life science, she attended med school at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Shout out the home team. After graduating med school, she completed a residency in anesthesiology at St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York and a fellowship in pediatric anesthesiology at Children's Hospital LA. In addition to being practicing physician, Dr. Aimee is a professional speaker and creative entrepreneur. In 2015, she took her passion for fashion and founded the Hot Healing Foundation, whose mission is, quote, to give the gift of hope and well-being to chronically ill, terminally ill, and disadvantaged youth and young adults, including LGBTQIA, with the use of head-to-toe makeovers, gifted products, and photo shoots. How did that introduction sound? That sounded pretty accurate about my journey there, nice and concise. Yes, yes. And so if there's if people are interested about any of the things that I mentioned, this is an opportunity to plug your website. I know there's a bunch of stuff listed on there. Do you want to go ahead? I'll let you do it now and then at the end again. Sure. My website is www.dominiqueaimee.com, D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-A-I-M-E-E. -E. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm more of a consumer of those social medias than uh, actually putting things out there. And it's at Dominique underscore Amy. Perfect. All right. So with that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and start with the formal episode. So can you tell me about your life growing up? What was your neighborhood like? What was your home environment? And what were some influences that you had? So I grew up here in New York. I first 10 years of my life, I lived down in Queens and then came uh, to Long Island uh, until I left for college. Uh, where I was at Queens, most of the people I interacted with were like my family, meaning my parents are from Haiti, so a lot of Caribbean folks in Queens. And then when I went to Long Island uh, in North Belmore, it was quite a culture shock because it was basically one of a few Black people there. I actually connected with the other Black students there. Some of them are my friends to this day, so a lot of the friends I've had for over 30 years. And, you know, it was kind of not the most nurturing environment uh, outside of my family, outside of those small circle groups. Yeah. I always felt encouraged by my family to do bigger and better things, but not necessarily by all the teachers or from the other students. But luckily I had kind of a strong upbringing and I saw lots of my aunts and uncles and uh, family members. So we were pretty tight knit, which I think was important for me to pursue things later on. For sure. and. Can you talk about that early, like the people at home building you up and then going outside and what did that, what did that look like? So neither of my parents are physicians, but there are several physicians in my family. So 
you can't see what, you know, you can't be what you can't see. I always saw physicians. It didn't seem unusual to me. And when I say several family members, I really mean that. I have an aunt who's a pediatrician, an uncle who's an OBGYN, another uncle who is a pediatrician. I am not the only anesthesiologist in my family. I'm the third anesthesiologist in my family. So it never seemed in my home life that medicine or higher education or just great things in general were out of my reach. It was just whether, is it something I really want to do? So I think not everybody has that. Not everybody sees those things in their household or uh, within their community. So for me, I was lucky in that respect. That That is super dope. Um, and that's definitely not the norm. Uh, w- was there a point when you realized that that wasn't the case for a lot of people of color in this country? Honestly, probably when I actually went to college and medical school. So okay. even- right, Wait, wait, pause that, because I, w- I want to yeah. talk about that later. Sorry, sorry, nope. sorry. <laughs> right. so, so you mentioned you had a lot of family in medicine. Um, was that your first like introduction growing up and having family members that were talking to you about medicine? What, what was that like? Yes. And I think it was encouraged by my parents because, you know, oh, we have this on and this uncle and it's just a great career in the United States to, to, to be a physician. And so it was kind of on the forefront, probably if I wanted it or not, it was just a great career to kind of nudge through. I was great at science. I was good in school. I was good with people. So it seemed like a natural progression of something that I could do. So in my mind, it was never something that I couldn't achieve. It was just whether or not I actually wanted to do that. For sure. And can you think back to your first exposure to like the medical establishment? And was it a positive or negative experience? I think uh, the first exposure that I can think of is when I was about 14 and I started volunteering at the hospital. My mom's a nutritionist, so I volunteered at the hospital that she was at on Long Island. And I was a, you know, a candy striper and had the little outfit and I was in medical records. That's where I started and trying to organize things. And we, you know, would read charts and try to organize them and just reading someone's medical chart, you really get a a glimpse into what's happening to them holistically from this, you know, this doctor is writing this note, this nurse is writing this note and trying to see all that goes into medicine. I think that was my first exposure. And then I worked on the OB floor, um, helping new, you know, uh, helping new mothers after they just gave birth. And so just kind of interacting and being more of an observer. Is is this something that I want to do? Is this somewhere that I want to work a hospital? And so kind of piqued my interest along with, you know, family members just telling about their daily lives in medicine. Sure. So something that I ask a lot is, did you have support in your decision to pursue medicine? But for you, since you had so many people in your family that were already in medicine, I kind of want to ask, was it was it pressure in like a not negative, but did you feel pressure? Like, was there ever a point where like I need to do this because there are so many people around? Uh. I didn't feel the need to need to do this, but it was so highly encouraged and I didn't really know what else to do. It just seemed like it was a path laid out for me. Um, When I was young, I had an interest in law and I had an interest in this, but this seemed like a career to do. So I think the path was led out for me and I walked it, um, but I was never told you have to be a a doctor or anything of the sort. But I think when you're young, you feel the pressure Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit, or you feel people's expectations for you, and you sometimes go with that. And it could still be your path, but those influences always play a role. For sure. Um, so with all that being said, thank you. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your education and your training in your early career. 
Um, I know you mentioned earlier, we had talked about, there was a point where you realized that, you know, this was not the norm, especially for a lot of people of color, a lot of black people growing up in this country. Um, let's go back to that. Just uh, like I said, a lot of people in my family, not just the physicians had higher education. In my mind, everybody went to college. I didn't know that there was a path for people who didn't go to college uh, until I went to college and, and even med school and realizing that a lot of Americans actually don't have the opportunity to go to college, either financial or it's just not something that uh, is encouraged or they have trade schools. So I was not even aware that college was not an option, that people had jobs outside of what college could give you. So in one respect, you know, it's good to, to be able to pursue education. Um, but then I'm also realizing that not everybody has the opportunities that I've had, uh, especially people of color or the encouragement or just seeing what you can become on a certain level. For sure. And can you talk about some of the challenges that you had to overcome to get to medical school? And that could be at any point, going back as early as you want. I think my biggest challenge was, is this something that I truly want? Yeah. I just couldn't figure out if there were other paths for me and it seemed like something I could do, but I didn't know a hundred percent I was in. I was not so concerned that I wouldn't get there, but did I really want to be there? But I went through the usual struggles of making sure you had the right GPA, doing all these extracurricular activities, you know, doing the research, paying for courses to get the MCAT score up and, you know, finding money, trying to ask my parents for money to do certain things. Um, and of course, I had lots of loans in college that kind of in the back of your mind, you're just like, how is this going to get paid off exactly? Uh, so my internal struggles, if this is truly the best path for me. Yeah. And when you were having those moments, could you talk a little bit about how you overcame them, how you pushed through? I would say it probably took me a while to actually overcome them, even through med school. I'm not sure if I'll be here, but I'm 100K in debt. So what else am I going to am I going to do? But really yeah. through med school, finding something that really spoke to me, something that I know I could be good at, that I can make an impact and still have time for myself to still kind of nurture the things that I wanted to grow in me as far as um, kind of spiritually. Uh, and I realized that there are paths for you to take in medicine that can really, everyone can have a unique path, I should say. Uh, it takes work to find that, but it can be done. And when you talk about that thing that you were looking for, I I'm gonna assume you're talking about anesthesiology, is that correct? The, the specialty that really spoke to you? Yeah. yeah. So anesthesia was one, but two, I wanted to know which population I wanted to work with. And for me, I never really thought I liked children until I did my pediatrics rotation. And then I felt a connection working with children. And so I knew that I was going to do something in pediatrics. So either pediatrics, neonatology, and then I found anesthesia. Also, I have people in my family. So I, I kind of, it was on my radar. And then I found myself uh, being interested in pediatric anesthesiology, even as a medical student. Sure. And we're going to talk more about that at a later point in the conversation. Um, I want to go back a little bit to, you, you talked about some struggles with the MCAT. Like, what was that like? It was stressful because, you know, <laughs> they always say you have to get the score. And honestly, it's been so long. I don't even remember what the scores uh, for MCATs were. If you don't get this score, you're never getting into med school and your life is ruined and nobody, you know, it's, it feels that way. And of course, medicine becomes more and more competitive as years go on, especially right. if you're a student of color, you're just 
always worry that you are not wanted in medical schools. And, and honestly, that's, you know, a little bit true. Uh, so I took the MCAT the first time, the score was fine, but not where I wanted it. So I had to, you know, pay for a course to really, uh, to, to get it up there. So it was stressful because I knew I could do it, but you never know if I knew I was good enough to be able to become a doctor, but you have to get in the door in order for that to, to happen. And there's always that fear that everybody's fantastic and you're just a little below fantastic. Uh, so, you know, you'll always struggle with that. If, if the test score is high enough, it's the GPA good enough. Do I have the extracurricular activities to really make it uh, to med school? it's a competitive environment. Those things will exist. You know, you try not to stress yourself out and do the best you can, but um, sometimes you have to throw money at a problem, meaning taking a course, getting a tutor, those things. And that's just how it is. Sure. And um, you had people telling you, you know, if you don't get this score, you're not going to get into medical school. You, you have a lot of pressure from all that. Did you have people in your corner telling you you can do this? Did you have people supporting you? I, I think probably my parents and family members, I and also friends, even friends who weren't in going into medicine or knew about medicine, say, oh, you're, you're so smart. You're always smart in high school. It should be no problem. You'll have that internal struggle just because medicine is such a competitive environment um, and just the powers that be make it feel like it's, um, I don't know, the Hunger Games or something of, of the like. It is competitive. It's hard. You just... You know, you have people in your corner who are on your struggle bus, other people trying to get into medicine and you're on the struggle bus and you try to keep each other up saying, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And, and hopefully the first time you apply, you make it um, that time, but some people have to do it a couple of times in order, in order to make it. For sure, for sure. And then talking a little bit about your experience in medical school, how was that? It was rough, as you know. It's rough. Um, <laughs> as, I, as I very, very well know, yes. I'm about to finish. I finish my first block uh, tomorrow. Actually, I take my last exam. Oh, congratulations! Yes. <laughs> Thank it's, you. Uh, it was a wake-up call. Nobody <laughs> told me. I don't remember any of my aunts. Oh, you'll be fine. That's all I heard. Um, I think you know, feeling I was a smart kid. I had all the good grades. I did well in college. In my mind, med school would be tough but it wouldn't really be that tough. That's what I believed. I didn't really realize you have to memorize books. Yeah. Um, not just understanding concepts, but the sheer amount of memorization was yeah. overwhelming to me. And um, kind of the test-taking skills that you had in college and high school is not the same as in med school. And honestly, it shouldn't be. It's supposed to be hard. Uh, you're taking care of human beings. You're supposed to know all the things, even if all that information will not necessarily be... I should say relevant into whatever field you're going to need that information. It comes, um, it comes in handy right. when taking care of people. It's supposed to be hard, and it was a struggle. First year, I think I failed like two courses because I just I couldn't reconcile the idea that I actually had to memorize textbooks. Yeah, you have to memorize textbooks. That's what you, even the captions on pictures. You should memorize those. Those are going to be on the test. <laughs> uh, and once I really got into my head that. I'm going to be a doctor. These are things I should know. Some of it is minutia, but those minutia may save someone someday or I might hurt someone someday if I don't memorize it. So I had to find out my own study schedule, what worked for me um, and kind of get down to it. So by the middle of first year, I found my group. Second year was easier um, as far as learning how to study, getting 
you know, the grades or the pass fail that I needed um, to get where I was going. Because those things bring opportunities to what kind of doctor you're going to be later on. For sure. For sure. And um, could you talk a little bit, especially for the students that are listening, thinking, you know, either maybe they're in high school, maybe they're in undergrad, studying is okay. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm making do, but what should I change to get to that next level where it's going to be even more intense? And even if you can want to talk about like what study strategies you picked up and changed to be more successful. I think uh, throughout probably high school and a little bit of college, I could read something once and if the concept made sense to me, I didn't really necessarily need to read it again and I could do perfectly fine on a test and excel on a test. And that's just not uh, the way things work with the, the type of information and the volume of information when you get to med school. So what I would advise is studying, um, finding your studying groove even early on. So what I would do is either take in the lecture, um, read something, write down everything, read a book. So I, I study like three times to get the information. So hearing it, writing my own notes, reading that same notes. Uh, sometimes I'd listen to audio transcriptions of lectures um, and then have a friend and kind of do oral exams, like explain to me, you know, whatever cycle. And if you could explain it to someone, they understand, then you have understood the concept. So studying by yourself, sometimes studying in groups, doing both, um, reciting it, writing things word for word uh, until you have an understanding where you could give a PowerPoint presentation on X, Y, and Z. So I think of it that way. If you could give a PowerPoint presentation on that subject, then you understood it well. For sure, for sure, tough. And could you talk a little bit about how your different identities impacted your medical school experience? I think I went to Einstein, uh, Albert Einstein, and when I went there, there was a majority of white students. Most of them were Jewish or Orthodox Jewish, and there were a very small number of uh, people of color. But what I liked about my medical school, I'm hoping that it happens to other people's medical schools, is that they have a department either for diversity or inclusion where you can connect to either um, older individuals in medicine or just your, your fellow students of color because it just gives you a, a sense of um, a sense of self. It gives you someone's has my corner so someone knows exactly what I'm going through. The struggles that you will inevitably go through as a medical student of color or any underrepresented minority. Uh, so for me, connecting with people who look like me helped me through medical school. So those people are still my best friends and they helped me get through medical school. Uh, so I'm glad that my medical school had that uh, within kind of the curriculum. For sure. Um, and I wanna talk about your specialty, but before we do that, um, can you talk about some experiences that stick out in your head at various points in your career, either as a student or as a resident, or even as an attending where you witnessed uh, either personally or saw it, people experience discrimination? I think that for the most part, though things are different now than when I was uh, a med student, people's discrimination was a little more under under the radar. Um, and now, now given the last, sorry, now I would say I said probably back then. Okay. Nowadays, I think people are a little more blatant with their racism, uh, and for the most part. In medical school, as a resident intern, as an attending, the biggest struggle I think 
that came for me or the, the racism that is most notable is that people will not believe you are who you say you are. You can have a badge. Hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so or I'm student doctor, whatever. Says it on the badge. Underneath my badge is a little sign that says doctor in big red letters. On the back of it, it says anesthesiologist. I will say it. Usually I have to say it or indicate it about four times for the average patient believes I am who I say I am. And everybody needs to see that. Okay. I've had people- On average. You said so on it's, average. Oh yeah. So throughout the years, I've kind of done experiments. If I only say it twice, will someone still refer to me as nurse or when's a doctor coming in? And it takes about four indications. So, hi, my name is Dr. John. I'm your anesthesiologist. I point my badge. I show the doctor. We go through the consent. I show them the written form, Dr. Jean. I show them my badge again. Um, and usually with all of that, it has sunk in that I am in fact their physician. Um, so I think throughout your medical career, that will happen often. And it's very disconcerting. You can have an hour long conversation with someone about, oh, I'm your medical student. I'm your resident taking care of you. This is the plan. And they'll, they have no, um, understanding or appreciation that you are who you say you are right or people will tell oh no you're not the doctor right oh no so, you're not the, you must be the nursing student or something of the like yeah so so that's ridiculous what it will what, happen what keeps you going when that happens you know what what internally or externally do you lean into to to kind of push through that uh it's hard because it it will still happen yeah uh, I wouldn't say you should get used to it, but I'm, you know, it's been 10, 15 years of me re-identifying myself several times. So I just kind of uh, go with it. And I'm a little more stern with people than I probably was back then. I say, hi, I'm Dr. Zhang. I'm the actual physician, me over here. And so I kind of give an indication that, uh, yes, Black people can be <laughs> doctors too. Uh, and if you have to embarrass someone, feel free to embarrass them. <laughs> you know, uh, nobody else is, you know, lying about who they are, especially right. when you've showed someone identification, you have to be, you know, even at Einstein at the time, I don't know if it's different now, uh, you would go into the resident, uh, the building where all the medical students lived and usually would have to show ID, but certain students didn't have to show ID, but students who look like me always had to show ID. Yeah. I think it's that annoyed me every single day. That yeah. these, you know, security guards knew me, saw my face. There aren't many of us. And I was required to show ID, but uh, some of the students who, you know, were melanin challenged did not. Sure, sure. I think that part is a little bit better now because I, I think. Gosh, the, I hope so. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, I, I feel like my friends and I were pretty cool with security here. Yeah. They have a lot more people that look like us now. That is always lovely to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that. You have to experience that, but you know, unfortunately, that is the society that we live in. What, what do you think? I mean, we can, we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit more discreetly when we get to membership. But real quick, like, what do you think we can do to change that? I think uh, the sheer volume of people who look like us being in medicine. Yeah. The more that people see it, other doctors, other medical professionals, and especially patients see faces like ours as. Uh, you know, physicians, people with medical authority, people who are ultimately responsible for their health, uh, the easier it will be. Sure. Awesome.
All right, so now I would like to give you the opportunity to talk about your specialty. It's a little bit weird because you're the first person I've had on the show that does like a million things also outside <laughs> of medicine in addition. I feel like I always have a lot of people that do a lot of things, but you're, you're definitely unique. So can you te- please describe your specialty and then describe your subspecialty, but also talk about all the things that you do outside of medicine, because I think that's really cool too. Okay. So I am an anesthesiologist. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, everybody thinks, oh, they put people to sleep for operations, and that is what we do, but we're prairie operative physicians, meaning we take care and prepare people preoperatively, intraoperatively during the operation, and uh, postoperatively to make sure that they recover well. Uh, so specifically, I help put children to sh- sleep, and children are not just small adults. They have different physiology, different pathologies, um, and it's a unique group to take care of. And my goal is for a child to walk into an operating room and leave that operating room with one less problem than they came in with. And for me, I liked anesthesia because it's instant gratification. Um, You know, I don't give a patient a pill and hope in three months that it's taken into effect. I know what I've done. I can see the evidence of what I've done and how I've helped within the end of the day. Uh, And like I said before, I have a special connection with the pediatric population, Um, not just with rapport, but I I find, you know, the physiology, the pathophysiology um, very interesting. And also there's a social aspect and some people don't like working with parents. I enjoy working with parents. It's all about how you present things. Um, And that's why I liked anesthesia for the instant gratification. And honestly, it's independent work. I don't, I always need a second hand. I only have two hands, but Um, I don't need to ask a nurse to give a medication. I don't need to ask a pharmacist. I do everything. Uh, So it's nice to feel self-sufficient with real life uh, skills. Sure. And then where did the Hot Healing Foundation come from? How did that come about? So I'll backtrack a little bit. So after my fellowship, like I said, I'm from New York. I did my fellowship out in Los Angeles. During fellowship, I just had a realization that for me personally, every day in the hospital is not where I wanna be. I feel like I'm not personally my best self uh, just because the environment, I just don't wanna be in a hospital all that time. When I'm there, I wanna be able to give all of myself uh, as a professional to my patients, even my adult patients, my pediatric patients. And for me, I needed something outside of medicine to kind of fill a creative, side of myself. That's where I felt that I was lacking in medicine. There was a creative part of myself that just wasn't nurtured. So after fellowship, um, I made the decision to go back to school. (laughs) So I went to fashion school. So I have a degree in fashion design and I was doing that at the same time I was working uh, in anesthesia. So I was working part-time. So three days a week, I was in anesthesia. The rest of the week, I was in fashion school. And after I graduated fashion school, I became a stylist. So I was a wardrobe and personal stylist for about uh, six years or so out in Los Angeles. And I would go to photo shoots or help personal clients or uh, assist celebrities, uh, celebrity stylists uh, for photo shoots and music videos and things like that. And it was great. But then the next day I would go to the operating room and deal with sick kids. And it was a very weird transition. You know, sometimes you might have an actor, an actress who's kind of being a little high maintenance on set. Meanwhile, they're getting the head to toe, you know, uh, Hollywood treatment. And then I'd go to a teenager who's, you know, getting a port placed for, you know, um, liver cancer or something of, of the like. And so I just thought, what if we can give that Hollywood treatment to the kids at the hospital? Because, you know, especially teens, 
nobody's um, kind of saying, oh, or you're so cute. You know, the teens kind of get not the, the cute treatment when they're in the hospital. So how about we give them gifts? How about we give them makeovers? They're not feeling great. They may not look great as a result of uh, what's happening to them physically. Why don't we give them just a day of pampering while they're at the hospital or kids who have been dealing with issues on a long-term basis. So I decided to have an event at uh, Children's Hospital Los Angeles where we made over some inpatient and outpatient chronically ill youth and LGBTQIA youth. And it went so well, I decided to make it a charity. And that's how Hope Healing Foundation uh, came to be. And we had several events over several years where, just like uh, I said, we would do hair, makeup, nails, um, get gifted items. They would get clothing, photo shoots with, you know, celebrity stylists and, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And they would get a photo shoot with their parents if they wanted. So it was very inspiring to, to merge my two worlds. And of course, the pandemic changes everything. We can't have in-person events, right? We can't have a lot of contact with kids right now. So right now, um, and for the last year, we've been giving gift boxes to kids with kind of the makeup and all these donations that companies have given us. So um, until we can have in-person events again, we're happy to gift kids because when you're in the hospital, especially with the holidays, it's nice to get a gift, especially if you're a teenager who's a little hard to shop for. Uh, so that's gone pretty well last year and we're, we're doing it again this year. Uh, you probably dope. can see in the background some of the gift, you know, the gift boxes and gift bags. Yeah. Somewhere. No, that, so that, we hand these over. Can you describe what it is? Cause the, the video is. Oh yeah. There. I keep forgetting. So I have a, <laughs> I have a box, uh, you know, the whole healing foundation gift box and I'll just kind of describe what's in there. So we have things for both, um, you know, kids who identify as more feminine or masculine. So we have socks, we have uh, face lotions, we have eyebrow kits, we have shaving oils, we have eye shadow palettes, we have lipsticks, we have nail products um, and things of that like, just a nice gift for when you're in the hospital. Sure. I mean, okay, so first that's super dope. That, that whole foundation is super dope. Before we talk more about that, I have to say I'm mad at you because... <laughs> I didn't know that you went back to school for that and you didn't correct oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I'm sorry. I missed, I missed that. No worries, no worries. Um, yeah, it was, that, uh, that's awesome. Like, half time school, yeah. That's awesome. That's very cool. And I want, can you please talk about like, so I feel like the traditional kind of dogma of medicine that you see from like your attendings that <laughs> for the most part are old white men, for the most part. Mm -hmm like is that you're all in on medicine like this is this is your life you eat sleep breathe the hospital you you kind of develop that during medical school and that serves you throughout your whole career so where did it come from for you to be like you know medicine is just one part of who I am and then I'm going to do this whole other thing just this whole pivot basically like where did that come from how did you how did you just talk about that I think it was by virtue of living in LA um, in New York, we're very, you got a job, you do this and, you know, you just kind of go down that path. And in LA, everybody has these, you know, seemingly impossible dreams and everybody has this, I can do this and I can be this and, and it's uh, inspiring. And I just, you know, I knew a lawyer who became a stylist, who's now an interior designer. And then the LA, those things aren't the most unusual things to, to have dual careers. And so being around people who I knew doctors who were voiceover actors, 
you know, things that you never really see in other places. And it inspired me, I can do whatever I want. I'm in LA. And it kind of fostered that, um, that belief that it can be done. I think perhaps if you live anywhere else in the country, you may not really see it for yourself. Uh, but I liked being in La La Land for that particular reason that it didn't seem unusual to chase after a dream that didn't make sense to the outside world. So I credit uh, LA for giving me kind of my fantasy life and just going for it. And everybody said, okay, that seems fine. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, moving back to anesthesiology real quick. I know you touched on this in a lot of your responses, but I want to ask outright, what was it that drew you to your specialty? Uh, I think also a process of elimination. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too. You don't have to go in thinking, you know, exactly what you want. I actually went into medical school thinking I was going to be a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I did a rotation first year in, in medical school in the inpatient uh, male psychiatric ward. And I said, this is absolutely not for me. And then <laughs> I did the process of elimination, even in second year, things that didn't really interest me. Oh, I love the kidney, but I don't love it that much. Probably nephrology is not going to be for me. Uh, I had an interest in radiology because, uh, you know, you kind of correlate things, what you're learning in med- in the first year of medical school to things radiologically. I thought that was an interest. Anesthesia was always in the back of my mind just by, by virtue of the fact that I had family members who were anesthesiologists. Um, but I also didn't care for clinic, meaning I hated clinic. I hated <laughs> waiting for results. <laughs> yes. I, I do not like clinic. Um, and I... I want to go home and not really think about my patients. I want to help them. I want to heal them. And I want to be done. And for the most part, not all the time, obviously, you can do that in anesthesia, um, especially if you're doing ambulatory, um, you know, oh, the hernia, the, you know, the circumcision, those small cases. Uh, but I wanted to have a little bit of freedom emotionally from my patients. I didn't want to be called after hours unless it was an emergency. And I wanted a little bit of separation just because uh, I empathize with my patients a lot. And if you know something happens to my patient, I think about it all night long, the next day for two weeks. And so for me to do that with every single patient would be emotionally exhausting. Um, and I like, like I said, being self-sufficient, being able to do things myself. And when I was on my anesthesia rotation, I believe at the end of my third year, it seemed like the anesthesiologist could get anything done yeah. and knew every subject in, in medicine and knew something about it. And, and so I, I liked being able to do that and I knew it would be hard. For me. Awesome. Obviously all specialties in medicine are difficult, but I knew that it would be challenging for the rest of the time I was in medicine. For sure. For sure. Thank you. And what are some discrete qualities for the people listening that you think would make a successful anesthesiologist? Uh, Someone who likes to think on their feet because you don't have a lot of time uh, to be able to go through differential diagnosis and and things like that. Sometimes you have 30 seconds to figure out, you know, this kid is not oxygenating well, what am I gonna do? So it's a hands-on specialty. You get to do some procedures um, and you have to think quickly, uh, which I liked because that would be difficult. Oh, got to calculate that real quick. What's this person's, you know, uh, weight and what's their physiology. So I like the quickness of it all. Um, and I like the fact that I could see multiple patients in a day and help multiple people in a day. Uh, so it kind of spoke to me in, in those regards. And 
you're basically doing critical care in the operating room. Right. And there were a lot of subspecialties that I can do after anesthesia if you want it. So it, it felt like I really had options and could cater my career to what I wanted. For sure. Thank you. And so this is a question I ask everybody. What does a typical day look like for you? I know you're all over the place. So if it's easier, you can say what a typical week looks like for you. So a typical week, and of course, the pandemic um, has right. put a damper on some of the charity work that I can do uh, and things of that sort, or even, you know, speaking engagements, everything is via Zoom. Right. Uh, but a typical week at the hospital is I get up super early because I like preparing. Uh, I like to, I have a zone of being preparing in the hospital when nobody's really there. So I wake up at about four o'clock, 4.30 in the morning. Um, if I can get some exercise in, that's good, but usually that doesn't happen till afterwards. Get to the hospital and I start prepping for my day. So if I have pediatric cases, I try to prep for as many of them because you want to do things quickly. And I start seeing my patients at about seven o'clock and um, I have a pediatric menu that I've developed for the kids at the hospital so they can choose what flavor mask that they want and oh, are we getting popsicles later and things like that. Develop a rapport for the parent. And usually I work by myself, meaning I don't have a nurse anesthetist or any assistance, uh, which I prefer because I like doing things all on my own. And we can kind of get through three, four pediatric cases, usually on the case with uh, some adult cases. And of course I enjoy taking care of adults as well. And usually by three to five, somewhere in that range. That's when I go home for the day. And then when I go home, you know, either hit the gym or start working on other projects. And one project that I've been working on through the pandemic is actually a, a book for medical students, a guide for medical students. So hopefully that will be out by next September, by the next, you know, school year. We're definitely um, going to talk so, about that more because I, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You'll still be able to use it. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I like that. I like that. And so you get up super early. What time do you go to sleep? Typically, uh, like an old lady, like nine p.m. Okay. So, so you're making. Yeah, sure I can't. I can't. Yes, I sleep is important. That's something you should learn in medical school. People even yeah. subspecialize in it, and you simply can't be that productive when you're sleep deprived. It's obviously easier said than done. Obviously, in medical school and and residency. And for me, in order to get sleep in medical school, I started skipping lectures. And for me, the way that I learned is, you know, lectures important. I wouldn't say everybody skipped lectures, but for me, I, I got lecture. more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you got more sleep. Quiet. <laughs> I got more sleep. I was able to learn more and I did way better on tests. So for me, yeah. getting sleeps and I, every two hours of studying, I would take a 20 minute nap. I would literally have blankets and a pillow in my, you know, sleeping um, in the study area. So I learned to practice prioritize rest. Um, like I said, it's not always possible, but with work hour regulations nowadays, that's uh, a little better for uh, people in training uh, than when I was when I was young. Um, but prioritize sleep because it's that's how you function, period. And it has long-term consequences for your health. For sure. So yes, I go to bed at nine, sometimes 8.30. I've been known to go to bed at eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a little sad though. <laughs> it's a little sad. I stay right. up later on the weekend, so. <laughs> so I want to close by talking about mentorship, but before we do that, I want to ask one more question about your specialty. So we know that we need more people of color in medicine in general. Um, what role, if any, do you see specifically for underrepresented minorities in anesthesiology? I think just like with the other 
subspecialties, we don't have enough of us. So I think I've, for most hospitals I've worked in, and because I've worked part-time, I've worked at several hospitals, I'm usually the only Black person, most definitely the only Black woman. I've only worked at one other, two other hospitals where I've, no. there's been another Black female anesthesiologist. Okay, yeah, sorry, um, I just wanted to clarify, are you talking about in the operating room and in, in the anesthesia department? In the anesthesia department. Um, okay. And of course, we're not seeing enough uh, Black and Brown surgeons. So when I see a black or brown surgeon, I'm like, oh, wow, that's because it's not typical. So we definitely need people, um, surgeons and anesthesiologists, uh, people of color, because it, ma- it does matter to see yourself. Even you're the most scared when you come for an operation. Yes, right. you'll go to your primary doctor for you know your checkup visit or, or what have you, but right before surgery, and it's sometimes comforting to see people like you. Um, it's nice when patients say that they're proud of you and they feel better knowing that um, they'll likely do better as a result of having a, a patient, a, a doctor who looks like them, um, which you know statistically is true, right? If you're, if you have, if you're a person of color, you have a person of color who's taking care of you as a physician, you are likely to do better. Right. So I think obviously not every black patient or brown patient can have a doctor that looks like them, but the more that we're there, it only improves the situation for all all patients. Awesome, thank you. Um, so last but certainly not least, I wanna talk about mentorship. So can you talk about the role that mentorship has played in your career getting to the point where you are today? I think that I should have had more mentors that I did. I um, didn't realize the importance of mentors because I kind of probably came from a family where you do everything yourself. You don't need anybody else. Just, you know, uh, get to get to reading, get to writing and you'll get there. And you need people to help guide you of what may not be a, the best idea. What's a really way, good way to get to where you're going? Uh, because you don't need to make your own mistakes. Other people have made mistakes. You can try to avoid those if you can. So I didn't really have mentors. Um, before medical school, other than just talking to family members, but that's not quite the same thing. But when I was in medical school, uh, when I was really thinking about anesthesia, I had some anesthesia mentors that I did research with and how to really choose the right residency, how to choose where I need to be. And that was helpful. And throughout residency, I had anesthesia uh, mentors. Uh, But I think it's also important to find mentors that are not necessarily in medicine someone who can mentor you either spiritually things that you want to do outside of medicine or to work with a sub a subset of patients. It's not necessarily a physician that can help you uh, do that. I would say having one to two or even three mentors is a positive thing. Um, especially if you want to have an eclectic black background like myself, I have had to look to other people. I still find different mentors today for the different things that I want to do either in, you know, writing a book or um, developing medical products, things like that. So I think you have to be proactive. These mentors aren't going to find you. You have to find the mentors. Uh, So I, and there are organizations to help you with that. There are books that help you with that. There are podcasts that can give you ideas on how to do that. But as a student, either a medical student, you know, college student, even high school student, you have to seek these people out. And they don't necessarily have to be people that you see in person. You can get on the Twitter and type med Twitter 
and just see what speaks out to you, see who speaks out to you. Um, so it's not necessarily someone you physically meet. Uh, and you can change mentors as your ideas about your life change. So I would say, don't be afraid to reach out to people, but in medicine as future physicians, as physicians, you always have to be proactive about your care for your patient and about your own career. Nobody's going to do that for you. So if that's the path you want to be on, be proactive about everything, every aspect about your life. I'm speechless because you're, you're dropping gems. <laughs> Perfect. I hope that things I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I hope the people that are listening are taking this away because I definitely agree. And I, I wish that this is stuff that I had heard earlier. I mean, I'm still hearing it very, very early, but even hearing it like at the beginning of undergrad would have helped. Astronaut. Makes a difference. Yeah. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but could you talk about the qualities that you think make the best mentees, people that are looking to be menteed? I think, uh, like I said, being proactive, mm -hmm. um, reaching out. You can never go wrong by sending a quick email, heck, you know, a DM stating, oh, I think your research is very interesting. I'm, I'm a high school student that's thinking about med medical school. I would love to, to hear your thoughts about X, Y, and Z. Obviously, COVID-19 has put a damper on, oh, I'll grab you a cup of coffee and we can talk about this. And that's right. usually a, a nice way to go. But yay, vaccines, maybe we can, we can get there again. Um, but even a quick, if I could have 10 minutes of your time on a Zoom meeting and show them what you see for your career, how that person connects with that, and why you think that they could be a good mentor to you. But I think mentorship is also networking and networking is in a one-way street. So it's not only what that person may do for you, but what you can do for them. So maybe that mentor wants to you know, have classes on a subject. They may want to know something from you. So not only offer, you know, it's not only what they can offer you, but what you can offer them because it's a relationship and all relationships, you know, are two-way streets. That's very, very important. And I think that one of the biggest things that I've learned kind of towards the end of undergrad during my gap year and starting medical school is come into these meetings with with the agenda <laughs> like like exactly, know what exactly. you want to talk about don't say can we meet and then be like all right I want you to mentor me <laughs> make a list make a list of everything you want to hit because right. you don't want to waste someone's time time is exactly. precious exactly and people exactly. won't think that highly of you if you have no idea what you're going to say or what you want out of the mentorship or you have not even interests that you want to talk about um, so you never want to waste someone's time because your time is important as this bears. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I have three quick questions that I want to end on. Regardless of specialty interest, what is one book you think every student interested in medicine should read? I was thinking about this because this is a very hard book uh, or a very hard topic to think of a single book. Huh. Um, but what I would say is kind of your something that focuses on your happiness level. I have it uh, here. Obviously, people can't see it, but it's called The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Okay. Uh, and it's kind of a, a how-to to figuring out what makes you happy. Okay. You want to be able to identify the things that give you joy, to be in a positive mindset, especially even before you get into medical school, because you're going to rely on those things to get you through. Because uh, sometimes in that deep mode of training or education can be a, a little depressing. So you want to find the things that you connect with. And this was, uh, I didn't read this before medical school. It wasn't out 
way back then. Uh, but I go back to it. I even had tabs in the book to, to help me get to a space where you're invested in your own happiness. That can be done through medical school. That can be done through training. That can be done even before you get to that process. But you always have to make sure that you're a whole and complete person and really work on that before you bring it to your patients, right? You, you have to be a whole person if you're going to be a great doctor. And so you have to focus on yourself a little bit. It's not just about the education. It's about you as a person. For sure. And I also want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about this book that you mentioned. When can yes, it doesn't. It? What is it about? I am, I am hoping you... that by next September. Okay. So this is a self-published book. I'm still working on the title, but basically it's a guide for medical students. It's not about how to study. It's not about, oh, these are the mnemonics, but the little things that people don't tell you um, that help make it a pleasurable experience. And it's also going to be almost a keepsake book where you can actually put photos of your anatomy group together. And what did you wear the first day? And, um, you know, put your badges, uh, you know, and so it's just a keepsake book that you can go back. Cause I kept a scrapbook in, in medical school and I go back to it every once in a while where you can make connections with yourself, a way to help you figure out what specialties for you, tidbits on how to interview well and how to get you to that next level. Um, and a keepsake, and it will be a great gift to give someone who's going into medical school or a gift to give yourself. Um, but there's nothing really out there that kind of helps medical students with the non-academic stuff, because that's obviously very important, but being a whole person, like I said, in medical school and, and learning what resources you might need, because you know there's anxiety, there's depression, there's a lot that happens that can be that can happen in medical school. And so this book helps address that in a fun way, but gives you resources. Um, and it's a nice keepsake, a great gift to yourself or to somebody else. And I'm hoping by next September, we'll be all finished with it. Awesome. That's very dope. I look forward to it. Second question. What is one resource you think all underrepresented students should access or be familiar with all underrepresented pre-med students? Now, this is an easy one. I would say Twitter. Because I, because, and not just to, to send out tweets, but to, to find access to different people. Um, because once you type in med Twitter, you'll kind of find out who the big wigs are of doctors uh, or medical professionals on Twitter, but it's a great way to get articles, just interesting articles. Oh, maybe that's something, a specialty I'm interested in. Do I enjoy reading research about this subject? Is that something I'd enjoy reading for the next 30 years? You can find mentors, like I stated before, on Twitter. You can connect with other medical students. People share, obviously, memes and jokes, and sometimes it's nice to decompress for 10 minutes a day um, with those things. But you can, more importantly, find resources, learn about physicians that you would never otherwise know about. You can learn about EKGs. They have People give little mini EKG classes on, on Twitter, and they can send you to different resources as well. So... I don't want people to be bogged down by social media where that's interfering with your studying, that's interfering with your life. But 10, 15 minutes a day, just to get those specific med Twitter um, you know, references can really put you in the right direction or change your direction to something that's um, catered to you. Very, very tough. Thank you. And last, but certainly not least, what advice do you want to leave with underrepresented students pursuing medicine? 
that even though the numbers are low, that you can absolutely do. Uh, someone before you who's looked like you that has your demographic is there. And sometimes you need to see that. So you could use Twitter, you can do your research and sometimes reaching out to that person to know that someone like you has done it too is so comforting and gives you that extra push to push through. So I think um, knowing that there are other black and brown people, there are other native people, there are other LGBTQIA youth who have pursued this and who have excelled. Uh, and sometimes you have to be proactive of finding those people. Once you find those people, even just looking you know, at a profile can really change how you feel about yourself and what you can do. And they can help you even when you reach out as far as resources, resources to scholarships, resources to study tools, research to groups to belong to that can help you on your journey to being in a position. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been like, <laughs> this has been an amazing conversation. Thank I you. I'm so happy to be listening. Here. Yeah, I hope that everybody that's listening took away a ton because there were some very important tips that were shared over the course of this conversation. Um, one more time, do you want to plug your website, your socials, whatever people want to keep up with you on? Sure, sure. My website is www.dominiqueamay.com. Uh, if you want to learn more about my charity, it's called Hope Healing Foundation, www healing.org and that's spelled h-a-u-t-e-h-e-a-l-i-n-g and on twitter or uh instagram and i think i'm on linkedin too though i don't really check it i'm at dominique underscore amen awesome awesome thank you so much dr john this has been phenomenal um yeah I, honestly i'm so i'm gonna be thinking about what we talked about over this call <laughs> thank, um, so you. thank you this was it was great to, to to talk with you and i hope that the listeners can get something out of it. And this is a fantastic podcast. So um, congratulations, not a small feat, especially in first year, not a small feat at all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So for everyone listening, until next time, remember to keep inspiring by example. Peace.